Often called the Second War for American Independence, the American Army faced the British again in the War of 1812. What were the causes for the war? How did the United States Army meet the strategic and tactical challenges? What battles, won and lost, shaped the eventual American victory? For discussion and insights, stay tuned. Welcome to the U.S. Army History and Heritage Podcast, the official podcast of the United States Army Center of Military History. The Center of Military History writes and publishes the Army's official history, manages the U.S. Army Museum Enterprise, and provides historical support throughout the U.S. Army. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the United States Army History and Heritage Podcast. I'm Lee Reynolds, the Strategic Communications Officer for the United States Army Center of Military History. In this episode, we discuss the United States Army in the War of 1812. Joining me for this discussion is Dr. Glenn Williams. Welcome, Glenn. Thank you, Lee. Good to be here. And uh, it's good to have you back. I know you, you helped us out here a lot on the Revolutionary War uh, podcasts. But uh, some background on Dr. Williams. Dr. Glenn Williams is a retired Army infantry officer and airborne ranger. Hua. He is a published author on the colonial and revolutionary war era, has extensive experience working in historical locations, including as a historian and curator at the USS Constellation in Baltimore Harbor with the National Park Service Battlefield Protection Program and assistant curator for the Baltimore Civil War Museum and President Street Station. Dr. Williams has been a historian with the Center of Military History since 2004. Well, Glenn, that's pretty impressive. Uh, a lot of history uh, there. What am I missing? Any Anything special you want to point out? Uh, it's basically also my hobby. In my so-called free time, I research <laughs> and write books, give lectures, lead tours of battlefields, and also part of my job here, leading staff rides of battlefields for military leaders. And I do also want to point out that in um, in addition to you being an author on, on your own, separate from the Center of Military History, you've also written several uh, books about the colonial era or the Revolutionary War era. And here at CMH, uh, you also write and edit um, publications. And because we are talking about the War of 1812 today, uh, we have a, a set of seven pamphlets about the War of 1812, and you played a role in these. What did you do with those? I basically planned out uh, which the volumes were going to be. Each one is tied to at least one of the campaign streamers on the Army flag. Um, I recruited uh, the authors, and uh, with my uh, associate uh, and colleague, John Moss, uh, we did the content editing. Uh, I did five of them. Um, John wrote one of the pamphlets and did the content editing on the other. All right. Well, great. And John Moss, of course, uh, he was with us for our third part uh, podcast about the Revolutionary War. So uh, those people who have been listening for a while will we'll know John. So let's get into the War of 1812. You know, I remember uh, in my college history courses, they said, this is the second war for American independence. Um, but a lot of people don't really understand why or how we got into the war. So let's talk about that first. Um, how did we end up in this war? Okay, the, the Second War of Independence, a lot of people take that wrong. They think Great Britain wanted to retake the colonies and make them part of the United Kingdom again. But that's not true. Uh, the British did not recognize or respect American sovereignty uh, in the period. 
Um, so you might have heard the slogan, free trade and sailors' rights. Well, Great Britain and France were engaging in what we now call the Napoleonic Wars, and both of them had blockades against each other and seized our shipping on occasion. And the British actually impressed some sailors from our ships, American citizens, uh, because they did not recognize citizenship in the United States. The other cause... Uh, is without uh, Spain there to keep the keep the United States in bounds east of the Mississippi uh, after the Louisiana Purchase, uh, Britain had to find another way to limit the expansion of the United States, and they started inciting and arming and equipping various uh, tribes and nations of American Indians uh, to keep the frontier in turmoil to prevent that expansion. So those are the two big reasons. Yeah, and I think that's that's where the phrase "once an Englishman, always an Englishman" comes from. Isn't that right? That's correct. Right. Um, all right. So I understand you know why, but um, so let's talk about opening battles. What what happened um, to get us in, into the conflict? At, at the beginning of the year 1812, the U.S. Army is very small. Uh, paper strength of about ten thousand. Actual strength half that. Uh, but it looks like we're Approaching going to war with Great Britain, Congress authorizes expanding the army to about 35,000 between January and June of 1812, uh, from a, uh, an army of seven regiments to an army of 44 regiments. Uh, so you see this rapid expansion stretches the small regular army to the limit for providing uh, leaders and, and, and cadre for these new regiments. The opening battles take place and do not go well for the U.S. Army. Uh, along the Niagara frontier and uh, in, in the uh, Michigan territory, um, we suffered some tremendous losses, including the loss of Detroit and, and battles along the Niagara, mainly due to because of the uh, unpreparedness of the small then expanded regular army and militia called to federal service without uh, much training. Right, and so it had really been about 30 years since the end of the Revolutionary War. So has the American Army's tactics and weapons changed much in that time? Uh, we were still using the linear tactics like we talked about in the Revolutionary War. Uh, many other weapon systems are the same, maybe a little improved, uh, still using the smoothbore musket for the basic infantry weapon. Although the use of the rifle had expanded somewhat, uh, by the end of the war, the U.S. Army would have seven regiments of riflemen, uh, and each uh, unit might have had uh, uh, other units of uh, um, riflemen, and militia had uh, either battalions or regiments of militia as well. All right, so <clears throat> that really, I, I think, goes to tell about why we had these losses in, initially. We just, it was, the American Army was unprepared, and was it, uh, you, you mentioned a standing army. Um, did the army also rely a lot on the militia at that time? The, the army had to rely on the militia in a lot of cases. And, and, and you know, the, the Congress said that up to 100,000 militiamen could be detached, which meant put on federal service uh, to, to assist the army. Um, they also authorized the raising of uh, 50,000 what they called volunteers. These are men from the militia called to federal service for a one-year term, paid the same as regulars, and then you had the regulars as well. Uh, but the same thing happened, expanding from that small army to a huge army uh, without developing leaders, uh, mm -hmm. uh, discipline, and so forth. So after those initial losses, and the expansion is, is continuing, did we take any of those the lessons learned and, and 
did the army improve? Very much so. The army did start to improve. And in 1813, uh, we defeated uh, an invasion into the Ohio Territory, um, counterattacked, regained Detroit, uh, even had forces into um, what's now western Ontario uh, and stayed there to the end of the war. And on the other front uh, along the lakes, uh, repelled an attack against Sackett's Harbor, New York, and uh, raided the city of York, uh, which was a provincial capital, now Toronto, uh, on, the, on the lakes. And in, in that battle, I, I think we talked about uh, at some point uh, uh, Pike. Pike was involved Zebulon in Pike was involved in the raid on York. Um, a lot of people think that the U.S. Army burned York, mm-hmm. but the British actually started the destruction by setting their own powder magazine ablaze when they withdrew, the resulting explosion, some of the debris that fell, hit and killed Pike, uh, who was in command at the time of, for the U.S. Army, and he died there. And Zebulon Pike, again, just for those listening, uh, remind them who, who he was. Uh, Zebulon Pike was a longtime regular Army officer, uh, led expeditions into the Western Territory uh, of Exploration, uh, and it is for him that Pike's Peak is named. All right. And uh, all right, so you know we had in, in initial losses. I, I think so. Um, then in the second year, we were able to gain some of those losses uh, back, I guess, in, in in our victories, and we expanded into Canada uh, and a couple places actually. Mm-hmm. By 1814, uh, we have crossed the Niagara. We've taken Fort George, advanced deeper into Canada. There, uh, we still had forces in Western Ontario. Uh, and uh, pretty much taking the offensive. We still had some setbacks along the St. Lawrence, but basically a much more improved army uh, Mm -hmm. that had made some gains and won some some impressive victories like uh, Chippewa uh, Mm -hmm. in uh, in Canada. Right, and uh, so up to this point, most of this war, at least for the army, is being fought in the north. Right. Is that correct? Yes, and uh, mostly in Canada. And that's one of those misperceptions about the war is uh, some people think, well, we were trying to get Canada to be a new state, but that's not true. Remember, free trade and sailors' rights. So we had a navy that had only about 12 frigates, and we're fighting the greatest naval power in the world. So the only leverage we would have is to make an encroachment on Canada as a, a means of bargaining for uh, removing those restrictions on our maritime trade. And, and I think it's worth noting, too, what was happening on the seas. So you mentioned that the British were really tied up with the Napoleonic Wars. Uh, so they had limited resources out here, but did they not establish a blockade? Uh, they did uh, in a couple instances. Uh, it was mainly uh, centered on the approaches to New York Harbor and the Chesapeake Bay primarily, uh, where they could detach squadrons from the, um, from the war in Europe. Um, which they were able to do more after the 1805 Battle of Trafalgar, uh, mm-hmm. where the British uh, uh, regained dominance uh, of the sea. And so now let's let's say moving into 1814, then uh, pivotal year here because the Napoleonic Wars ended. Well, they went into a, <laughs> a hiatus. Hiatus. Napoleon uh, uh, abdicated, mm-hmm. uh, but he came back a hundred days later. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there was a brief part in there and. 
some say um, that uh, one of the reasons why they started sending more troops to America to fight this war here was not only to end this war here, but they had a feeling that Napoleon might try to come back and they wanted to keep their large standing army standing. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so that was one way of doing it. (laughs) Right. But it was it provided the British uh, some time to send additional resources, massive reinforcements, both both naval and army. So then how did the British strategy uh, change? In 1814. They they embarked on three offensives, one from Canada to come down Lake Champlain towards the Hudson, Uh, a second, a major diversion in the Chesapeake Bay area to draw the regulars of the U.S. Army away from the northern frontier, and the third to operate in the Gulf of Mexico um, to attack Mobile, Alabama, and, and New Orleans. And uh, ultimately, the goal in New Orleans was possibly to not re, not take that and occupy it, but uh, the, the British never recognized any treaties that uh, anybody had signed with Napoleon. So the thought is that they were going to recede uh, the Louisiana Territory from the Louisiana oh, wow. Purchase back to Spain. Because Spain was Great Britain's ally. Right. Uh, okay, so <clears throat> three three different uh, phases, if, if you will, in in eighteen fourteen. Let's let's talk about each phase. You talked about the no- the north. How successful were the British? Okay, the, the British launched their invasion coming down Lake Champlain. Uh, naval battle uh, of uh, Lake Champlain won by the Americans. Uh, without the naval support, the British army is stopped at Plattsburgh, New York, um, by a combined army of regulars and militia. Um, then about at the same time, the British are in the Chesapeake and they launch a raid against Washington, D.C., um, the mm-hmm. capital of the U.S. They are able to defeat a, a, an, ar- an American army made up mostly of militia at a place called Bladensburg, just outside the district. Mm-hmm. Uh, that enables them to come into Washington and set fire to most of the public buildings, including the Capitol and White House. Uh, And then they go to Baltimore, uh, where Baltimore puts up a stiffer defense and they're turned back there. Mm -hmm. And then from there, most of those forces that were engaged at Baltimore go to the Gulf and they're part of the the force that attacks New Orleans eventually. Right. But then in so in Washington, D.C., you said that the British attacked and burned the public buildings. They they left most of the rest of the city. They did not touch private property except if, if there had been somebody firing from a, pub, a private mm-hmm. building. But interestingly enough, the commandant of the Marine Corps' house, because it was considered private property, was spared, even though it was at the Navy Yard. They burned the rest <laughs> of the Navy Yard. Okay, that's interesting. All right. Um, and so at this point, the, the battles are now moving in, in, into the Gulf. So let's talk about the, the Battle of New Orleans, Andrew Jackson. Uh, so what, what actually took place there? Okay, uh, the— Pretty interesting battle. Uh, the British had uh, a massive army. Uh, they had already attacked and failed at Mobile, moved into New Orleans. That's their primary target, their primary objective. Um, they're able to move from Lake Bourne all over to the Mississippi, and they're going to advance up the Mississippi to the city of New Orleans. Uh, a U.S. Army commanded by Major General Andrew Jackson uh, combined militia, regulars, sailors, Marines, uh, privateers, I think, right? Privateers, uh, even um, even some uh, Indians and uh, refugee free men of color from Saint Domingue. So, uh, talk to me about the battle. I mean, this is a very very famous battle. And well, before we get into that, I I think there's a there's a, a big myth that says that the Battle of New Orleans was fought 
after the war was officially over. So is this correct? Uh, Well, it has some truth to it. Uh, The Treaty of Ghent, which negotiated the peace between Great Britain and the United States, was agreed upon in Ghent, Belgium. However, it still needed to go to both governments to be ratified. And it was not finally ratified. It had to be ratified by both parties. It was not ratified for another six weeks after the Battle of New Orleans was fought. So it had been negotiated peace, but not a ratified peace. Not finalized. All right. So what happened in New Orleans? We tend to think of the Battle of New Orleans as having one engagement on the 8th of January. But actually, there were several smaller engagements leading up to that. Um, Jackson set up his line along the Rodrigue Canal on one side. And on the other side, he had another line. The British attempted to attack a very poorly executed attack. uh, And... um, the British sustained a lot of casualties, including a couple of the British general officers, uh, before they called off the, the main attack and, and withdrew back to their fleet. Um, and then they attacked Mobile again. <laughs> right. So the second battle of Mobile? Yes. And what happened in that battle? Uh, the British were able to take the fort at the end of the peninsula. Uh, but knowing that the British were aiming for that, uh, Jackson had marched most of the American army from New Orleans to Mobile. Um, they're about to square off when they receive word that uh, a peace has, mm-hmm. is in the offing. Um, so they go into a, a, a truce uh, and trade casualties and prisoners and things like that uh, while they're waiting for word on what happened with the, the peace treaty. So then they find out about the peace treaty, and, and then what do the British do? The British sail for home, mm-hmm. and uh, some of those uh, regiments will be at the Battle of Waterloo. Okay, so they get back into the Napoleonic Wars. So Andrew Jackson, you know, one of the big heroes of the War of 1812, um, who else is worth highlighting? Oh, Winfield Scott. Winfield Scott is a young brigadier general commanding an infantry brigade. It's his unit that does most of the fighting at the Battle of Chippewa. Uh, He'll eventually become the commanding general of the U.S. Army. He will lead uh, the U.S. Army's expedition into Mexico during the Mexican War, and he will still be the commanding general of the U.S. Army uh, at the outbreak of the Civil War. Right, right, and uh, Operation Anaconda, I think. And that's his plan that eventually <laughs> is executed to win the Civil War. Yeah, that, that's amazing. Wow. Um, any, anything else about the War of 1812 that you think is significant to address? Yeah, I think uh, the attack on Baltimore uh, is significant. Uh, had two phases, a naval phase where the British executed a naval attack against Fort McHenry, uh, which withstands uh, uh, an overnight attack, 25-hour bombardment, and a land attack where the Maryland militia is able to uh, um, delay and then halt uh, the British land invasion. And significant in that particularly is, uh, of course, we all know the story of the writing of the Star-Spangled Banner, the original name being the defense of Fort McHenry. And I like to tell people that, remember, the Star-Spangled Banner was the garrison flag of an army post. Ah, very good point. That's a good bit of hua trivia here that we'll get to in a few minutes. So at the end of the War of 1812, by this time, the, the numbers in the army had uh, had risen. Um, the experience level was very high. Morale was high. Uh, what happened to the Army immediately following the war? Well, as usually happens to the U.S. Army following a war, it's downsized, as mm-hmm. we would say today. Uh, a lot of regiments, most regiments were under strength to begin with. And so with the discharges of the soldiers at the end of the war 
and who's left. A lot of units are consolidated, renumbered, as a matter of fact. The, the, the old 1st Infantry Regiment becomes part of the new 3rd Infantry Regiment, which it still is today. Uh, so they're, they're broken down into these uh, more up the strength but fewer regiments in the Army. Uh, and they go back to doing what they had done before, a lot of guarding the frontier, a lot of manning seacoast forts and things like that. And uh, what about territory? Did um, What did it look like? Did we gain? Did we lose territory? Well, we did not fight the war to gain territory, so there's no gains. However, um, we do start to make inroads into Florida, uh, east and west Florida, which is still controlled by Spain and will be until shortly after uh, the War of 1812, and uh, also um, the troubles with the um, uh, the Seminoles. We will end up fighting three different wars with the Seminoles following the War of 1812. So let's uh, let's talk about um, uh, Hua Trivia. What uh, what kind of Hua Trivia? Or is it still proper to, to say huzzah? It is still proper to say <laughs> huzzah. Uh, right. I think the, um, the the Hua Trivia for the War of 1812 is that. Uh, um, a, a lot of the leaders of the army that we would hear about between this time and the Mexican War uh, w- would come to the fore, and uh, uh, and especially uh, on, on the western frontier, you'll hear a lot about uh, the units on the western frontier, uh, and the rifle becomes more of a, a not yet a standard weapon, but more utilized throughout the army. Oh, okay. And um, so some of the weapons, and then as the weapons are improved, are we going to see changes in tactics following this war? We'll start to see changes in tactics, but we, like all the other armies that we engage with, um, are still basically using the linear tactics, although artillery comes into more use uh, with Napoleon. Okay, so lessons learned from from those wars, and and we apply them to the army. And then, uh, so overall, you mentioned this earlier, battle streamers. How many battle streamers uh, were put on the army flag from this? Was it? Um, I, I think seven. Seven? Yeah. Okay. Uh, we often forget about the uh, the campaign against the Creeks, uh, which is considered one of the battle streamers, one of the Indian wars. But it's really part of the War of 1812. Uh, Andrew Jackson commands the U.S. armed army forces that engage in it. Um, the creeks at the time uh, are divided. The white, white stick creeks are allies to us. The red stick creeks are allied with the British, and they are influenced very much by the British and helping the British wherever they can. All right, great. Well, thanks so much, Glenn. It's a pleasure to have you on again uh, and talking, um, you know, getting all your insights here on the War of 1812. Um, And if anyone wants to learn more about the War of 1812, I mentioned it earlier, we have a seven-pamphlet series on the War of 1812. Uh, Dr. Williams, um, you know, helped develop those and and edit those, and those are available on our – from our website uh, at history.army.mil. And if you want to experience Army history every day, then please visit our social media sites on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram – And make sure you like and share them so that we can get more people excited about Army history. And please join us every week on this podcast for more in-depth discussions about Army history as we cover topics from all eras of U.S. Army history. So if you love Army history, you don't want to miss an episode. Thanks for joining us today on the United States Army History and Heritage Podcast. For the Center of Military History, I'm Lee Reynolds. And until next time, we're history. 
The views expressed in this podcast reflect those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views, policies, or opinions of the U.S. Army or Department of Defense. For more information about the Army's proud history and heritage, go to history.army.mil.com.